This morning we're in Genesis chapter 1 again. It's easy for you to find. It's right there, first couple pages. Uh, last week we talked about what this uh, chapter taught us about God, how he revealed himself, uh, not just explicitly, but implicitly through the creation, and what that means for the gospel. This morning we're going to think about what this text teaches us about creation and with respect to the gospel. And next week... We're also going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of what this teaches us about humanity, particularly with respect to the gospel. Just trying to lay down some of the foundations for faith. Uh, But have no fear, I'm not going to reread all of Genesis 1. So, just a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let's stop there, and let's pray. Our Father, we come before this text and the rest of this chapter, each of us with lots of assumptions. And some of those assumptions are right and true and good, and some of those might be wrong. And so I ask that you would instruct us by your Spirit, not just with the brute facts of uh, what this teaches, but also to help us to see your purpose and your goal, that our hearts might be drawn to you, that we might love you more, that we might trust you more completely, even obeying you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the light of the world, who makes our eyes to see. Amen. Presuppositions. It's one of those words. It's a big word. Something we probably don't think a whole lot about, a presupposition now, do we? And in fact, some of you might be going, what in the world is a presupposition? Well, a presupposition is basically one of those underlying assumptions that you have or beliefs that you have, something that is has not been proven and probably cannot be proven and yet forms the foundation for the way in which you view or understand the world. We all have presuppositions about all kinds of things. And when we come to this text, people have all kinds of presuppositions that they bring to the text. Some of those, as I said in my prayer, are right. Some of those are wrong. Now, the interesting thing about presuppositions is they don't just sit by themselves, is what they do is they then move you in a direction. And your presuppositions will shape your goals for creation. Your your understanding of where creation is going, and therefore how to live as a result. And obviously we are human beings, and we do not all live consistently with our worldview and our presuppositions. Christians don't live consistently with it, and so same thing with non-Christians. We all struggle to live in light of the truth, or as we understand it anyway, and definitely have trouble understanding the truth and living in light of it as it is in God. So, if we're wrong in our presuppositions, we're in a very bad place. So let's look at this text this morning. The big idea that that I've kind of want to lay out and build upon this morning is that God prepares creation as the home for Jesus' bride. And I hadn't really thought of it that way until I read that quote by Doug Kelly last week. And really, that is it's a better way of understanding this text as we should understand all the texts of Scripture in light of the gospel. 
This brings it back to not an isolated doctrine of creation, but brings it back into connection with what we know about what God is doing from beginning to end. It gives us his goals and direction and how we live in light of there are, therefore. And so God answers in this text some of the big questions that people have been asking for thousands of years. Basically, who am I and how did I get here? And some of that is what we'll look at this morning. The first part of what I want us to see this morning is that God graciously subdues and fills creation in order to support life. God graciously subdues and fills creation in order to subdue life. If you look at the creation myths, and almost every culture has a creation myth. In fact, you know, that's what Darwinism is, evolution is. It's a creation story. One of many. Okay? Go back and think of some of these. And basically, a lot of them have to do either with some form of dualism, that there is a battle between the gods, sometimes just two, but sometimes more, or that uh, the gods are somehow fighting this idea of this eternal matter that exists. And we see this in a lot of them. I just want to mention two myths this morning. One is, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Imamu Mamamawa. Imuma, that's right, Imuma Elish, which is the Babylonian myth, uh, also was co-opted by the Assyrians, though they changed a couple of names, and basically their story of creation goes this way, that there are gods, and that these gods had an enemy named Tiamat, who had monsters, and in order to defeat Tiamat and their monsters, they created another god by the name of Marduk. Okay. And part of their creation story is that Marduk slays Tiamat, fillets her, cuts her in half like a fish, and makes the earth out of one half and the heavens out of the other half. And then takes the monsters that serve Tiamat and tosses them into the sky to create the constellations. (laughs) Takes the blood of her husband and forms humanity. That's how the Babylonians and the Assyrians understood creation. And to take their presupposition to where it was, that's why both of these nations were basically seen as barbaric. They're cruel. They were warrior-like. That's how they saw, understood what they were to do. It comes from their whole God, worship of the god Marduk. Divide, conquer. Okay. We'll move outside of the Middle East and we'll go to Africa for a moment. The Bakuba people believe that there was a giant by the name of Mabombo, and their story of creation is that Mabombo had a tummy ache. And when he threw up the first time, it was the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he threw up. Yeah, it's really interesting. There are other ones that are worse. Don't trust me. (laughs) Couldn't share them in this audience. Um, But he throws up into the chaos. And so there you have the sun, the moons, and the stars. And what happens is that the sun begins to evaporate the water and reveal the dry land. And then he gets another tummy ache. And up come people. And up come animals. And up come tools that the people would use. So kind of interesting. I don't know how that plays out in the uh, Bakuba people because I don't know anything about the Bakuba people. But they probably lived a very simple existence. So these, these stories have shaped. They begin to shape the way a culture and a people begin to look at life and what they are to be doing. They're very different, I think, from Scripture. 
in a lot of ways. Because there is no great enemy yet in Scripture. When God creates, He is not creating in conflict with another God. There is no other being outside of Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we see is that God created matter, and then He shaped that matter. And so what we find is that there are two things that are going on. There is first the instantaneous act of creation in which all of the matter is made, but then there is the work of creation that follows in which God then in six days shapes, forms that creation into something else. We see here in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it talks about, okay, what was this like when God created it? And it uses two words, tohu and bohu, for those of you who like Hebrew. And I kind of like those because they rhyme. It kind of adds some flavor to what's going on. The tohu and the bohu, if you'll see in the chart there, the, the, the tohu has to do with the formlessness, that this space that God created it was, was empty. It had no shape yet. But it was also bohu, or empty, void. There was nothing yet living in creation. Rather, we see, as the the rest of that verse talks about, is that creation is characterized by both darkness and water. Because we have the Spirit of God hovering or brooding over the face of the deep. It's not evil. It's just not formed and not filled. And because I live in a subdivision that's not quite done yet, I kind of see some of this stuff, and so they'll be, it'll be coming here. And it's almost as if, you know, the big truck just came and all of the supplies for the house just got dumped on the lawn. Well, there's no lawn, just a bunch of dirt. Okay? That's kind of what this looks like. There's no shape, there's no form, it's just a whole bunch of stuff. And now God begins this work of shaping and filling the stuff. The first three days, what he's doing is he is beginning to give shape to it through dividing. He's separating things. We see that first off, he is separating light from darkness. The, the second day, he is beginning to separate the sky from the sea. On the third day, he then separates the land from the sea. And so he's giving shape through this division. He's removing the tohu from creation. He's removing the formlessness in the empty space of creation. He's creating a place in which life can begin to dwell. Because life needs water. God has water. Life needs light. He provides light. Life also needs darkness. So he provides darkness, provides land for it, provides food for it. For the last thing he does on the third day of creation is to provide all of the plants, which he gives as food to the creatures that he has not yet made. Now, some people will read this first part of it, and they'll precisely look at it and go, okay, light. Wait a minute. Day four. It's not until day four that God creates the sun and the moon. How is it that there is light? Honest question. But I think back, or ahead, rather, Revelation 21. What happens in the new heavens and the new earth? It says that there is no need for a sun or a moon, because the Lord shall be their light. 
God doesn't need the sun and the moon for there to be light. But he does choose on day four to create the sun and the moon as a means for light thereafter until the time of the new heavens and the new earth. So that shouldn't be a huge problem for us as Christians if we believe God is pure light, among other things. And so God, this world sustains life precisely because God in the shaping of of the universe makes it capable of sustaining life. Days four through six, we see God dealing with the bohu this time. He's going to fill the emptiness. It is, environments have been created. Now he's going to fill them. And on day four, he fills the day and the night with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then on day five, he fills the seas and the air with the birds and the fish and he gives them the power to recreate just as he gave the plants the power to recreate. Their DNA was there. They're able to replicate and continue on. And then on day six, the height of creation. He makes the land creatures followed by humanity. He fills the land that he has shaped. Let's look at it this way. Remember, I talked about all of the stuff that was sitting there for the house, right? Well, this past week, we had a trailer pull up and where there was basically just a foundation. Within two days, suddenly the house was framed. That's God taking care of the tohu, shaping it. Where there was just a bunch of pile of stuff, now God has created the frame of a house, uh, the outside of a house, and then begins to fill it, similar to what we do when we build a home. Make it suitable for life, because we don't just need four walls, but you actually do need water in there. You need electricity in there, right? Got to be able to cook and eat, take care of things. So we can understand it. But the purpose is not just to have a building there. The purpose of having the the house there is that someone buys it and lives in it. And so the work of the builder is not done till people like myself and my wife come along and buy it and move into it. And so we see God doing all of these things himself. The world has life because God puts it there with the power of generation. So... That this world contains and sustains life is not accidental, but it is due to the purpose and will of God. And that matters. We'll see why in a little bit. The second part, the second thing I want us to kind of see as we think about this is that God affirms the goodness of creation specifically as a stage for the gospel. He's affirming the goodness of creation, but there's a reason for the goodness for the st- as a stage for the gospel. Creation comes to its highest point, as I said, with the creation of humanity, because humanity is alone is separated from the rest of creation by this notion that people are made in God's image. And we're going to explore that next week. But this is the height of creation. And so we see that everything has been building towards this. It's not accidental that God shaped all of these things. He's made it specifically a place habitable by people. Us. We're not a spontaneous accident. We're not the the product of chance and time. We are a specific creation by God for a specific person, uh, purpose, which he had in mind all along as he was creating the rest of it to make it suitable 
for us. What's he up to? Why did he shape everything for the benefit of his people? And I believe that we step back from creation, we look you know, through the whole book and we begin to understand what God is at work at here in chapter 1. We begin to see that he's preparing things to provide a bride for his son. This is the goal that he has in mind. It's not just some nice experiment. Let's see what I can do on my weekend, what I can create and shape. He has a purpose, and that purpose, as we see of the end, is that he will have a people that is his own, the bride of Christ. And in order to have the bride, he must have the nursery in which she must grow. The world. Creation. And so we see as, as this process goes on through days uh, two through six that God says it was good. He looks at what he's done thus far and he says, it's good. It's starting to connect. It's, um, it's going in the right direction. And on the final day, the sixth day, he doesn't say it is good. He says, finally, it is very good. And that assessment has not to do with morality and ethics as to whether it was right or wrong. It has to do with whether or not it fulfilled God's purpose, His intention. And so he's saying that what I have made fulfills my purpose and my intention. It's right. It fits. This, if he was to be hanging out here, would say, is awesome. When he says that it is very good, it stands in distinction to the Gnostics. And some of you go, the Gnostics? Who developed out of the ideas of the philosopher Plato. You've heard of that guy, right? You know? I always remind that, that line from the Princess Bride. So Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, morons! You know? They weren't morons. But this idea is moronic, uh, and Plato had this idea of dualism. And essentially the idea that matter, physical reality, was evil, and that spirit is good. What God says is that matter is good. It is not evil. We can embrace it and we can enjoy it, we, we participate in it. It's not something to be shunned and to be avoided. We are not, as Christians, Gnostics, somehow being suspect of that which is material and physical. Because that is not the problem. In fact, we are to delight in that which God delights, and He delights in His creation. We are also to, to weep and mourn over what we, God weeps and mourns over. And so I think of two things. I think of our cross-country trip. And I was amazed at how different Parts of this country are. There, you know, I, I've never driven that section. I've been in parts of those uh, regions. Uh, I've never driven through them. But I was, I was amazed at how different and yet how beautiful parts of this country are. God made them differently, but beautifully. And I should delight in it because he delighted in it. And I, I think I did. Especially those Texas wildflowers. Man, those gorgeous. But we should also weep. When oil fills the Gulf of Mexico, that should sadden us, particularly as Christians. Now, oil is natural. It's not something bad, but what happened is it's now out of where it belongs, and it is now destructive because it's not where it belongs. 
And that is bad. So we can, we look at life, the creation this way. But it's not just so we see that, that matter or creation is not our problem. Actually, our problem is sin and the curse. And we see Romans 8. The, the, the creation has been subjected to futility by the Creator precisely because of our sin. And right now it continues to groan and to moan until that day when Christ comes to reveal who His children are, who His bride is, to take a different metaphor. But it groans, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. But what we see, what I want us to understand right now, is that God works out His gospel in creation. Meaning, He's created this stage for this magnificent story that stretches back to the beginning of time and will go all the way until the end of time and then beyond. And the stage is where we are. In Scripture, there are not very many scenes of heaven, are there? You have some in Isaiah, you have some in the Psalms, and you have some from Revelation. That's it. Okay, Ezekiel. Portions of Ezekiel. Most of it takes place where? On earth. Our faith is is connected to earth and reality that we can see and hear and smell and taste. That's where God has chosen for all of His eternal degrees to be to come to pass is in this place called earth. And so what happens is that, that we find God sustaining creation despite humanity's rebellion until the fullness of time. And it is then at the fullness of time, as it talks about in Galatians chapter 3, that Jesus is born of a woman. Mother's Day. I had to throw that one in. Okay. But again, he's entering creation. Taking on flesh and bone and a human nature. Jesus is not outside of creation now, somehow fixing what's wrong in creation. He now enters into it to fix it from the inside. This is good. Jesus, born of a woman, dies to redeem God's wayward people. And I like to think of it in terms of the Matrix, the first movie, not before it got all weird in the second and the third one. Okay, Although in the first one, there's still a lot of Gnosticism and fun kind of philosophies floating around in there. But in the first one, the way in which Neo is able to save human beings from the oppression of the Matrix is to enter the Matrix. He cannot destroy it from outside. He must take care of it from within. Christ comes in incarnation to overcome our guilt, our sin, and eventually to remove the curse and restore creation. And so because we have a view, or we should have a healthy view of creation, we recognize that salvation is not just about us people, but that God is going to be at work to restore creation in addition to the individual work of salvation that he accomplishes. And so right now, God is sustaining this universe to continue to transform lives through the gospel. That's one of the things that uh, when Peter writes his second letter, chapter 3 addresses that. Because he says, there are people who are scoffing. Where is his coming? When's Jesus going to get back? When's he going to do what he said he did? 
And what Peter says is, and it's interesting, because he brings up creation and the flood to prove his points. But then he says, God is not slow, as some of you account slowness. Why? Because he he wants to grant repentance. There's time for people to repent, for all of his people to come into the church and be saved. And so the, the delay that we see right now has to do with redemption, continuing to be applied. And so God sustains the universe so that might happen. That's why I'm not afraid of global warming or anything else. Global freezing, I don't care. This will be here until such time as God's purposes are completed. That should give us hope and courage in the midst of anything that we might worry about. But not only that, but when we look to the new creation, or we look, you know, it's not just about heaven, but heaven comes down and is on earth in the new heavens and the new earth. And so our eternal place is very physical. We're not just disembodied spirits, but we're reunited with body in a physical world. And so it's not like the earth is some you know, temporary thing that God's going to crumple up, toss in a newspaper, I mean, top, toss in the basket. He's going to renew it, and we're going to be here forever. So if you don't like it, too bad. This is where we're going to be. And that is good. And as I said, we will have a physical reality. 1 Corinthians 15, we shall be changed. The, the frailty will be gone. The perishability will be gone. The weakness will be gone, but we will still have physical bodies like Christ's new body after the resurrection. And so creation, while it suffers from sin, will be renewed by Jesus according to the gospel. Last part of this is that apart from the gospel drama, people worship creation. Something goes incredibly wrong when we separate ourselves from the story. And that's because Adam sinned. Okay? And because Adam sinned, it really messed us up in ways that we'll talk about later. But man's relationship with creation changed. It's not just his relationship with God that changed, but it's also his relationship with creation and our relationship with one another. But instead of caring for creation as God's steward, now people began to, as it talks about in Romans 1, to worship parts of creation. Since we're at odds with the Creator, we begin to worship the creation. And so you have, the way I understand it anyway, is we've moved from a place of of proper stewardship of creation, and, and on the left, we start to move into the exaltation of creation. And we see this in environmentalism, where we're not just taking care of it, we're beginning to worship it as, as if it was God itself which is one of the Greek gods, gay, earth. We get to worship it. Well, you know, it's not like only the liberals have it wrong, you know. The conservatives often have it wrong. The people on the right tend to exploit creation instead of being stewards of creation. Okay? Sin is no respecter of persons. Okay? It's not Democrats good, Republicans evil, or vice versa. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We tend to try to drown out that reality. 
But the true position is one of stewardship of creation, which recognizes the goodness of creation and, re- and utilizes creation. And we'll get into that next week. But what I want to hit is this the reality that we're, when we separate ourselves, when people separate themselves from the story of God's creation and redemption, what happens is they separate themselves from His great love, and, but they still have that void. Jeremiah chapter 2. What is it taught? I have this against my people, that they, for, they forsook me, the spring of living water, and dug for themselves cisterns which could hold no water. It's not just Israel who does that. All of humanity does that. We dig cisterns. We love creation inordinately, improperly. And so some people begin to seek their life to fill that hole that was designed by God in pleasure and consumption. So they they, they abuse creation. See this in addicts. Gluttons. Greedy people. They begin to worship an aspect of creation as if it, that will satisfy their souls and it can't. Cut off from our true purpose. People seek to create purpose on their own. That's the whole idea of existentialism. Get really heady and philosophical today. It, it, it proceeds from deism, which can, is not stable and can't maintain itself, and you fall into basically this idea of if there's a closed system, this is it, the universe. There's nothing outside of the universe. Uh, We are a cosmic accident, and in order for us to somehow maintain a sense of sanity in the midst of this cosmic accident, we create purpose on our own. That's what existential says. The power to be, the, the power to create meaning. That's what humanity has done. Because they won't listen to God's story, now they try to fabricate the story of their own. People need to know, need to learn from us, that there is a better story that can capture their hearts. That's what evangelism is. Communicating the greater story to capture their hearts. Too often we we view it confrontationally, and there, there is an aspect of confrontation in it. But still, this idea of a better story, and, and part of how we can do this is engage the creation stories those people have. Asking them, how do you think we got here? And beginning to ask them questions about that and understand what their presuppositions are. And therefore, what they think the goal of creation is and, and how all that plays out. Ask them probing questions to understand these presuppositions and goals. Ask them these questions to try and gauge the consistency of their thought. It's amazing what happens when I actually when I do that. Don't expect miracle results all the time. Um, a lot of times I get blankness. Because a person who believes in accidents also believes in right and wrong, precisely because they're made in God's image, and yet they really can't explain why they believe in right and wrong. Because remember, they've cut themselves off from the story. And the idea of a social construct doesn't make sense to them, and so they don't want to go there, but they really have no good reason to explain their sense of right and wrong. They know certain things are wrong, but they can't explain it. But they don't want to face the truth. 
that it exists because there is a right and wrong that has been implanted in them by their Creator. And yet, that's what we do. We, we call them to this knowledge, this truth, that we're not a cosmic accident, that there is a goal in mind, and that we're part of it. But first we must understand them and love them, not just beat them up. So creation is not an end in itself. Sort of like deism, talked about last week. But in reality, God made all that there is in order to fashion for himself a people, a bride for the son he loves. And so creation serves as this stage for this great love story between God and his people. And so seeing the goodness of creation, we can begin to invite others into this grand story where they can find forgiveness of sin, where they can find hope, where they can find a basis for the right and wrong they already believe in. That their life might make sense for a change. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm grateful that we have a better story. A true story. One that actually took place and not one that is the fabrication of our own minds, but also one that makes sense of this world. And so grant us faith to believe this story. Grant us the courage to proclaim it. And grant us the love to do it gently. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen.